The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Just days until the presidential election. What did last night's debate mean? For the sprint to November 3rd and the latest on the energy sector. Is Joe Biden going to ban fracking? He says no. But what does he mean by curtailing emissions by 2025? Democrats, Democrats push back against the nominee for clarity. Plus all of that and what happened in the markets. And Hagar Shamali joins me on the Israel, Sudan, Armenia, Azerbaijan developments happening overseas. We go geopolitical, even on a Friday. Lots to get through. I'm still in Nashville. I'm still in cowboy country. Uh, I've got a lot to cover today and an all-star panel. Uh, joining us in the next hour, Maddie Duffler, Brian Brokaw, and of course, Hagar Shamali. But we kick things off with the legendary Justin Sink, who is a Bloomberg White House reporter. Justin, you know, I'm still in Nashville. Uh, I got to be honest, Republicans breathing a collective sigh of relief about last night that the president didn't do the strategy that he tried to deploy in the first debate. But as we move forward here, the only thing that my sources are talking about is the exchange on energy policy and fracking. What are you hearing from the White House today? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that moment is the one that probably energized the, the president and his supporters the most. They feel like they really got Joe Biden to back into a mistake when he uh, what he was trying to say was that he wanted to end federal uh, energy subsidies for uh, oil companies. But what he seemed to actually be saying in the moment was that he was ready to get rid of oil as an energy source kind of across the board. And, and the hope for Republicans is that in uh, both traditional swing states like Pennsylvania, where there's a big energy sector and fracking, natural gas uh, play a large role. And in Texas, which has become a sort of surprise swing state in this election, at least according to the polls, this is going to be a comment that, that resonates deeply and might push those back uh, back towards the, the president's favor. Well, we've got the soundbite from last night's showdown in Nashville. Take a listen to uh, President Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden squaring off on energy policy. Roll the tape. Would you close down it's the oil industry? Way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. It is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because... The oil industry pollutes 
significantly. I mean, when you hear that, I, I, I got to be honest, Connor Lamb country, is, is, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I mean, even today, the pushback from uh, Democrats even, and, and, and from the Biden campaign trying to clarify, I, I can't underscore this enough. I mean, that is a massive, massive statement to make in a final presidential debate. We all thought we were going to be talking about the Supreme Court and, and court packing. I mean, this was a massive, massive statement just in sync. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it is a, a big statement, though the polling does suggest, even in states like Pennsylvania that have a, a sort of significant energy sector, that that there is more support for sort of transitioning to green energy, more support for getting away from fossil fuels than there is otherwise. And so uh, it's certainly, I think, the big talking point after last night. But the question is, is we've got 11 days until Election Day. To what extent is the cake already baked uh, versus can this make a big difference? I hear you on this, but this is this is even if Joe Biden wins the presidency, this is such a major issue, folks, because we got to go macro for a second, because if he does get the White House, this is the perfect illustration, whether or not he will move to the left towards AOC crowd. Uh, and and Green New Deal crowd, or whether or not he will stick with the governor of Ohio, John Kasich, a Republican who endorsed him, or Senator Mitt Romney, for example, who wrote in a a candidate, and all of the other Republicans who have uh, endorsed him as as a refuting President Trump. But he didn't really provide clarity last night in terms of the direction that uh, that he is going to take the country in on such a massive issue. I hear you. I totally agree. Listen, listen, these pollsters, when they say, are you for new energy? Of course it's going to. It's like, are you do you love babies? Of course you're going to say yes. But when you actually get into it, when you go into Marcus Hook, the hook, as it's referred to commonly uh, outside of Philadelphia, as Joe Biden name dropped yesterday, uh, and, and, and you actually go into these refinery towns, I mean, and you hear about the families who have been not able to go to work to the refineries as a result of the pandemic, and then to hear that from a Democratic presidential nominee to say, we're going to transition away and have no emissions by 2025, that is a major statement. And quite honestly, Justin, you and I have talked about this offline. Uh, Quite honestly, I don't think the Beltway media fully understands that. Let's take a look at the headlines that I have on my Bloomberg terminal. You can actually right now see the top front pages if you go to front go on your Bloomberg terminal. Great new terminal function. Washington Post, how politically damaging were Biden's comments about closing down the oil industry? Wall Street Journal, oil industry bristles at Biden's pledge to transition away from crude. National Review, press plays defense after Biden campaign walks back oil industry comments. The Guardian, Biden's pledge to transition from oil draws praise and Republicans anger and then get this Washington Post follow-up article union leaders have Biden's back on fracking but in Pennsylvania their members aren't so sure explain to me that the union bosses want Biden but down in the the, the actual workers I mean that 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 really does some damage Justin Sink. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a dynamic that uh, the president is obviously trying to replicate from uh, four years ago, where he saw stronger support among union members than certainly from leadership that's long aligned with with Democrats, because Democrats have been more protective of you know their ability to organize, their ability to collectively bargain, uh, and less sort of protective of corporate interests that are often you know bargaining against union members. 
so you're right. I, I think that this is um, an area that the president's going to try to uh, exploit. But uh, going back to what you just said, I mean, I think that is the the central issue, right? Is the person who has been out of work for six months because they can't go to the uh, plant going to vote based on what Joe Biden said last night or the fact that they blame President Trump for the coronavirus pandemic? I'm not sure what the answer is, but for Trump, uh, he's really got to hope that this uh, resonates in a deep and meaningful way because polls show that he's been trailing in all these states that he needs to win. And so, uh, you know, he was looking for a big moment last night. We'll see as as polls start to come out over the next few days whether this was that potential knockout punch that he really needs to climb back into the race or if it's something that will resonate with uh, people who could be immediately impacted. It might uh, sort of fire up other voters or it might just kind of be a blip because, as you, you and I both know, Donald Trump has a way of, of turning the page pretty quickly uh, day to day. It, it really is remarkable. Justin Sink's on with us. Uh, and uh, I, I would note Valero's chief executive, Joe Gorder, released a statement uh, after the debate expressing concern, reading from the Wall Street Journal, with Mr. Biden's comments and pointing to the company's investments in lower carbon biofuels. He said in a statement to the journal, quote, our strategy delivers tangible positive impact on the environment today and good paying jobs for Americans today as an alternative to campaign rhetoric and aspirational statements about tomorrow, end quote. That's from the chief executive of Valero, which, you know, has some refineries in Joe Biden, near Joe Biden's neck of the woods in, in Delaware. Uh, Justin Singh, you know, I, I got to be candid here, folks. When I interviewed some prominent, prominent Republicans yesterday, they were very nervous, very nervous about Arizona. Eleven electoral votes, swing state now. Joe Biden uh, leading in virtually every battleground tracking poll in the swing state of Arizona. And you got to remember... President Trump beat Hillary Clinton there by three and a half percentage points. I think that's notable. And you nailed it, Justin. And I know you're like me. You're an Eagles fan. And we love our Boston Scott today for that amazing, amazing <laughs> catch that he had last night. I watched that catch. Oh, my gosh. My heart. It was the best catch I've seen in a while. It even made me say, you know, maybe there's hope for Carson Wentz. But back to politics. On the <laughs> issue of Pennsylvania, the Republicans are all but saying that Joe Biden's going to win there because of African-American turnout and because, as you mentioned, uh, just the, the early polls suggest uh, suggest uh, Pennsylvania spells some trouble for Republicans this cycle. But, hey, I got to let, let you go. But tell me about that Boston Scott catch. That was incredible. Yeah, and if you're Joe Biden, you just got to hope that you're not Daniel Jones getting winded <laughs> as you run down and like, collapsing before you get into the end zone, right? I love it. That's what I needed to start this show on a Friday while I'm still in Nashville before I take my flight home. Justin Sink, have a great weekend, my friend. Be safe, be well. Keep up the incredible, incredible reporting. More next. I want to be like Boston Scott, Barada. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I love that song. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I don't want to go back to D.C. I want to move to Nashville. I want to live in the country. I want to be neighbors with Keith Urban. I heard my Uber driver told me that Justin Timberlake just bought a ranch down here with Jessica Biel. I think they're still there. I don't know. I'm not good with the gossip. But, uh... Listen, I love it down here. They've got great food everywhere you go. It's very, very much barbecue. I had, what did we have such? We had um, potato chips with, um, with, with like taco stuff and um, like tachos, but on potato chips that they made. And they put chicken on it, jalapeno peppers. I mean, it was amazing. I ate my face off the whole time I'm here. And I'm like, ugh. Back to D.C. But listen, we love Nashville. Everyone here is so friendly. If you've never been and you love country music, come. Come down. It's incredible. Listen, I want to come every day of my life. Vanderbilt's here. It's a beautiful campus. Uh, you know, the whole place is just gorgeous this time of year. U.S. stocks rose after the Trump administration resuscitated hopes for a spending package. Treasuries remained higher. Oh, Dollywood's nearby, too. I saw it on a billboard. The S&P 500 edged higher to pair a weekly decline. It erased losses after White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said he expects a deal in a day or so. Tech shares underperformed after Intel plunged more than 10%, dragging chipmakers lower. And American Express also faltered following earnings. Gilead Sciences, Inc., get this, rose after its antiviral therapy became the first drug formally cleared to treat COVID-19. Ugh, some optimism. The 10-year Treasury yield slipped to 0.83%. Oil slipped below $40 a barrel in New York. Gee, wonder why. Um, investors still remain focused on Washington, D.C., and that's why I'm so incredibly thrilled to welcome our next guest. First time on the program. His name is Willie Walker. He's the chairman and CEO of Walker & Dunlop one of the largest real estate finance companies in the nation. It's got a portfolio of more than $100 billion, with a B, including more than $2 million apartment homes. Willie has a unique window into the housing sector, which is a vital component, of course, of our economy. All right, what went on in the markets today, Willie? How you doing, Kevin? Nice, to, nice to be on with you. Thank you. What happened in the markets today? Uh, so, I mean, you just gave the outlook on the equity markets. On the debt markets, the 10-year went up a little bit, um, which uh, usually would make us concerned as it relates to overall cost of debt. But given how cheap debt capital is today, uh, a couple basis points to the 10-year really doesn't make a difference on either the single-family or the commercial financing markets. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. All right, let's talk about last night's debate because I'm still here in Nashville and in between bites, you know, I've done some reporting. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, and do you think that we got anything? We didn't really, housing didn't really come up yesterday at all in the debate. But what do you think, or how do you think the geopolitical landscape might impact the housing finance sector in particular, particular uh, post-November 3rd? 
So it's interesting, Kevin, that you say that it didn't come up last night because if you go back in history, it never comes up in presidential <laughs> debates. It doesn't. It doesn't even come up in primary debates. I know. And the, the what's so interesting about it is that the federal government has a very, very large role in U.S. housing policy, um, with the role particularly that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development play in the financing of single-family housing as well as multifamily housing. Uh, and so to your point, there's a very significant uh, impact that one administration to the next could have and usually does have on housing, um, but it never is a topic that's discussed on the national uh, stage. So specifically as it relates to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the GSEs and the conservatorship, they're still in a conservatorship. I mean, as it relates to that, do you expect that anything will be done about that conservatorship uh, if – in the new Congress, I mean, HUD Secretary Ben Carson has been saying forever, it seems, that he wants to dwindle it down. But, you know, they're turning a profit. Things are looking good over there. I mean, give us the lay of the land. So if Trump gets reelected, uh, Mark Calabria will stay in as the director of FHFA, which is the regulator that sits on top of Fannie and Freddie. And he's very focused on trying to privatize Fannie and Freddie and get them out and off the federal government's balance sheet. And it's very clear that if that if President Trump is reelected, uh, Dr. Calabria would continue down that path. If uh, Vice President Biden is elected, the path forward is a little bit less clear uh, for two reasons. One, um, the role of the FHFA director, um, there's actually a court case about whether the director has a full five-year term or whether the director is at the, uh, at the pleasure of the president. That court case is being actually heard in early December by the Supreme Court. Depending on their ruling there, many believe that court case will follow a previous decision on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where the court ruled that the director of the CFPB is at the pleasure of the president. And if that's the case, then Biden would have the ability to change out the FHFA director, which could change the future of the agencies and potentially revert back to a policy that was much more like the policy held during the Obama administration, which is keep them as these sort of quasi parts of the federal government control them, regulate them, and make sure that they're providing a lot of capital to the market. This is brilliant. This is brilliant, folks, because what he just did there was take us inside and highlight how the personalities is and the politics are impacting the policies. So, I mean, because, folks, if you get in a situation where there's Senator Elizabeth Warren is running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or someone uh, akin to her ideology, what I'm hearing from Willie Walker right now on the on uh, the telephone is that there could be some significant significant changes into into housing finance that trickle down well into the markets am i wrong willie or do i have am i on to something no i mean look elections have consequences as the president has said several times and um, i think one of the things people have to think about is it's not just who's in the west wing it's also who's running treasury uh, as well as who's controlling the committees on Capitol Hill. And so uh, an example there would be that the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee is Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from the state of Ohio. Yep. The chairman of the Senate Banking Committee today is Senator Crapo from Idaho. The difference in the policies and what they might do from a housing standpoint between Senator Crapo and Senator Brown are quite dramatic. Um, now, with all that said, Senator Brown is on the record is saying he would try to pursue a model of making Fannie and Freddie utilities, 
Now, whether they would be utilities controlled by the federal government or utilities owned by shareholders is something he has not specified. But what I, I want to make sure is understood here is we really don't know how much of a role the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee would have. If the Senate stays to the Republicans, Senator Crapo would remain as the chairman. If it flips to the Democrats, Sherrod Brown would be the chairman, likely. And um, their view on housing finance reform will change quite dramatically, just as it did when the House flipped to the Democrats and Maxine Waters took over as the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. So brilliant. I mean, this is why we're so grateful to have Willie Walker, chairman and CEO of Walker and Dunlop, on the line. And uh, I got to rip out the script to quote my friend and mentor, Tom Keene of Bloomberg Surveillance. You ran, you ran uh, the Boston Marathon in two hours and 36 minutes? Uh I did, Kevin, but that's that's ancient history. That's you know, I was I was a young buck when I did that, but I, I did. How the heck did the you do that? Listen, that is incredible. Don't even don't even say that is incredible. Willie Walker. Here's what I'm always going to remember: not just that uh, he's been able to grow uh, uh, his business during this this pandemic, chairman and CEO of Walker and Dunlop, but Willie Walker ran of the Boston Marathon in 2:36. I thought I should get a, a sticker for going on a 45-minute jog in Nashville in between eating all the barbecue. Willie Walker, come back anytime, my friend. I really appreciate your time. 2:36 marathon. Wow. Chairman and CEO of Walker and Dunlop. More coming up next. I'm Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Showdown in Nashville, but what does it mean for the battleground states moving forward? We play it forward into the next 72 hours on the campaign as the Biden campaign tries to do some cleanup with regards to comments pertaining to the energy sector. We unpack it. All of that, plus 
confirmation process proceedings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett looking like a shoe-in to get on the bench. And my colleague Jonathan Farrow spoke to Larry Kudlow. I'll play some of that as well. And we go geopolitical around the world with Hagar Shamali. Lots to get through. I'm still in Nashville. I don't want to leave. I love it here. Get ready for the sprint as we head into November 3rd elections. This as somewhat of upwards of 40 plus million people have already voted in this presidential election, but it's now a get out the vote effort for both campaigns and front and center at the last night's debate in Nashville was the energy sector. Take a listen to President Trump and Joe Biden battling it out on energy policy. Here they are. It has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the, to the gas, excuse me, to, the, to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? Would you close down the oil industry? By the way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I will that's transition. a big statement. It is a big statement That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh. That was President Trump as well as Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden last night at the Nashville debate speaking about energy policy. And it has prompted some backlash uh, from vulnerable Democrats who are now having to distance themselves from Biden's uh, oil comments. You know, you look at uh, someone like Kendra Horn, for example, uh, who is running in Oklahoma District 5. Uh, she tweeted out, here's one of the places Biden and I disagree. We must stand up for our oil and gas industry. We need an all of the above energy approach, and that's consumer friendly, values and energy independence and protects o Oklahoma jobs. Uh, it, it's fascinating, fascinating to see people in Connor Lamb countries all over all over the country. Texas, which was in play for the Democrats, now this energy issue front and center. That's what we're going to focus on tonight. Maddie Dupler is with me, founder of Forward Strategies, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, and a former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference, Brian Brokaw, political advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom, and the former campaign manager for Kamala Harris's successful candidacy for California Attorney General in 2010. Brian, split the difference for me. To folks who are confused as to whether or not whether or not uh, Biden would go to the AOC crowd and the Green New Deal or fight for those union refinery jobs, what is a bribe? I think he can do both, uh, and I think he will. How? <laughs> how? First of all, I mean the the fact that the idea that this election is now somehow going to shift from a. Uh, uh, referendum on Trump and all of his failures over the last four years and how he has totally mismanaged this COVID pandemic to now a debate over whether or not we're ultimately going to transition away from fossil fuels into uh, a, a mix of alternative energies, which, by the way, most Republicans are also with. I think it's absurd that all of a sudden the, the, the debate's going to have turned overnight. So, uh, of course, it gives the Republicans something to latch on to for today. But I think uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things over the next two weeks. Well, wait a minute, though, because because I see what you did there, Bri, but it's Friday, so let's have fun. Let's. I'm in Nashville. Let's square dance, shall we, buddy? Okay, so no, that's not what I said. I didn't say the dynamics of the race were going to change. I raised an issue as it relates to energy policy, where if, the, if, if there is a President Biden, as is increasingly looking like he's leading in battleground polls, what is he going to do? Because there are several families 
uh, across the country, in parts of the country like Texas uh, and like in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Marcus Hook, which is an area that Joe Biden referenced last night, where there are refinery workers who are Kennedy yeah. Catholics, who are blue collar union workers, who have had incredible careers working at refineries. OK, uh, and, and so when you're talking to them and, and those people are listening right now, and they're trying to say, hey, wait a minute, I was with Joe Biden. I was there when he said he wanted to appeal to John Kasich crowd uh, Republicans. And then all of a sudden he's saying he wants to have no emissions by 2025, and they haven't been able to go to work since March. Brian Brokaw, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a serious, serious statement from the, from the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. So I don't think Joe Biden actually said anything last night that he or Democrats haven't been saying for a long time. There was nothing in what he said about getting rid of the fossil fuel industry overnight. We're talking about a long-term transition, a transition that is already underway thanks to market forces, the same market forces that my friend Maddie loves to talk about. This is already happening and already underway. These jobs that uh, you're talking about are good union jobs, the same unions that are primarily supporting Joe Biden. So I don't think there is, I, th I think they're making you know, a lot of about uh, uh, not too much with what he said last night. What he talked about was a long-term transition that's already underway, away from total dependency on fossil fuels into a mix of alternative uh, sources of energy. Maddie Tuffler, come in here. What did you make of those uh, that, the, the energy comments from last night? Well, Brian let the cat out of the bag. The fact that he and I are friends from across the aisle, I wish more Democrats sounded like Brian, talking about an all-of-the-above energy policy. But the fact of the matter is that Vice President Biden is in a tough spot right now coming off the debate you know it was interesting to me reading a lot of the um you know the the armchair quarterbacking this morning a lot of people saying you know biden didn't really mean what he said he came off a little bit too hot in the comments about oil and natural gas i mean oil and natural gas supply 10 million jobs in this country they're almost six percent of the workforce but as you pointed out kevin they've been on tough times the last couple of months i mean the predictions now for the last now, for the next couple of years, is that the demand for oil will not recover from the drop uh, due to coronavirus. That is a huge pressure on this industry. And a lot of people who depend on that for their jobs are looking at the industry thinking, what is next for us? So I think that for Joe Biden, Joe Biden, you know, from Delaware, Scranton, Joe Biden, for him to be able to have a message that connects with that type of voter, that kind of middle of the road, Rust Belt voter, he needs to be able to answer that question. And I think in the debate last night, what he did was so seeds of doubt for the kind, for the voter who's watching, wondering which candidate is going to answer that question for them, which is what is next for this industry. Exactly. Is it going to be an energy sec? Is it going to be Energy Secretary Ed Rendell or Energy Secretary AOC? I mean, seriously, yeah. folks, that's that's the big question. And obviously, I'm not suggesting either of those people before Brian says AOC will not be energy secretary. I get it, Brian. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm on the radio. I'm, I'm, I'm talking ideologically, which person in, that is going to be the energy secretary. And I've made this point for several, several times, which is that these debates are important because it's an opportunity for the voter like that refinery that like that that mother of three refinery worker 
It's a uh, swing voter. It's an opportunity for her to get an understanding of what their tax policies and what their bottom line is going to be looking like around the corner. And quite honestly, we didn't get clarity on whether or not he's going to expand the Supreme Court. We didn't get clarity on what he's going to do on the energy policy. That's by design, based upon my reporting. And it's a strategy that is fueling him to victory in Pennsylvania, where African-American turnout is surging in Philadelphia. And it's something that President Trump won in 2016 in that state. And clearly, Pennsylvania is trending in another direction this cycle. But there are several questions on policy. If you're a policy nerd like all three of us, several questions. Panel stays, much more coming up next. Maddie Dupler, Brian Brokaw. I'm Kevin Cerilli, and I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, I'm going to play for you my colleague Jonathan Farrow's interview with Larry Kudlow from earlier today on the economy. And what's going on with those fiscal stimulus talks? Because it's just every day up and down, up and down. With me for the hour, I've got an all-star panel, Maddie Zuppler, for founder of Forward Strategy, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and the former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference, Brian Brokaw, political advisor for California Governor Gavin Newsom, the former campaign manager for Kamala Harris's successful candidacy for California Attorney Generals. And Brian, you actually uh, worked on John Edwards' 2004 Iowa caucus, and then you went here to where I am, Tennessee, in the primaries. What do you remember about Tennessee? Oh, wow. Well, uh, great food for starters. I was in Nashville. The best best food I've ever had in my life. Yeah, and I had a great time there. That was uh, our biggest competition, aside from John Kerry, was Wes Clark, if you want to think about how long ago that was. So, yeah. <laughs> I, back in the day, I remember, and then it was Dick Gephardt. Remember that? And all that oh, saga. Yeah. It was the whole thing, the whole thing. All right, Maddie Dumpler, now I got to put you in the hot seat because Republicans are lagging in the, uh, in the, in the swing states. You know, I, 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 yesterday at the debate site, I was talking with some uh, – Trump re-election campaign sources, and they're very worried about your state, Wisconsin. I mean, they're very mm-hmm. worried about Wisconsin, and they are very worried about Arizona, a state that Trump carried by three and a half percentage points back in 2016, and now is all but moving and slipping away and going right to, to Joe Biden. Pennsylvania is something that they're not even, you know, really, I mean, they're going to campaign there, but, you know, I mean, it's looking like an uphill battle to win back PA, but Wisconsin and Arizona... They feel that they got to win them. And one senior Republican source told me if they lose Arizona, it's going to be rough, a rough night for Republicans. Yeah, Kev, that's right. I mean, in one sense, Arizona, of course, is on a later time zone. So it's uh, to, I think that if we've already seen where the Rust Belt is going, Arizona will be in some ways less important. Um, but, you know, the Rust Belt is where Trump 
and his message that was couched as a populist economic message really gained traction, right? I mean, that's where you saw the millions of voters who voted for Barack Obama switch over and vote for Donald Trump because they wanted to see an outsider. They wanted to see someone in the White House who was saying the things that they had been feeling for years, which is that they felt left behind um, by the economic recovery. So, you know, what President Trump needs to do is to have an economic message that continues to resonate with those voters. And I think that, you know, we talk about Wisconsin. As listeners know, I'm from Wisconsin. I spent the summer in Wisconsin with my family. And Wisconsin is struggling on a number of fronts right now. Farmers are under uh, a lot of pressure thanks to President Trump's trade wars. Uh, you've got manufacturing continuing to grapple with the coronavirus. And, of course, you've got a public health threat uh, that has really taken hold of the state. And, you know, I'm back in D.C. You might be a Nashville cab, but I'm back in D.C. where it's 80 degrees and sunny. Uh, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, winter has started, and that's going to create even more pressure on the public health situation as people have to be indoors and they can't go outside. And all of the things we've been able to do over the summer that have allowed well, for the American economy to be more resilient well, aren't Maddie, going to be available to us in the Midwest. Maddie, play political strategist for me. I mean, talk to me about Wisconsin. Talk to me about the geography. How does – how does uh, are, are you are you hearing that, that Wisconsin is going to slip away from Republicans, and, and, and is it too late for Republicans to turn the tide? I think it's going to matter in one sense who turns up to vote, but in another and sense where? what they're voting about. Right, exactly, and what they're voting about. People need to remember this about Wisconsin. Wisconsin is Milwaukee and Madison and then the rest of the state. Milwaukee and Madison are the two big urban hubs that typically break away uh, from the rest of the state. Northern Wisconsin is a completely different world entirely than the suburbs of Milwaukee. And President Trump, what he was able to do was create a message in 2016 that really resonated and drove people to vote in northern Wisconsin. What he needs to do this time around as well is have a message that gets people excited about voting. Even though, you know, we've talked a lot about this on the Democratic side, whether or not Biden excites the base enough, you know, gets enough people out to vote. Trump has the same challenge in northern Wisconsin, where, North, you know, I say northern Wisconsin is an analog to kind of the rest of the, the Rust Belt, where he was able to make a difference in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in 2016. He needs to have a message that gets people feeling like their personal fortunes are on the line if they don't vote. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether or not he's done enough to be able to accomplish that in 2020. All right, take a listen to former Vice President Joe Biden speaking last night, accusing President Trump of deepening the nation's racial divisions. Here he is. We've always constantly been moving the needle further and further to inclusion, not exclusion. This is the first president to come along and says, that's the end of that. We're not going to do that anymore. And meanwhile, President Trump addressing Biden directly to say that he ran for office to correct the errors of the Obama-Biden administration. Take a listen to that. Joe, I, I ran because of you. I ran because of Barack Obama, because you did a poor job. If I thought you did a good job, I would have never run. Brian Brokaw, when I, when I, hear, uh, when I hear Maddie Duppler give us the lay of the land on a battleground state like Wisconsin and, and again bring up the cities and the turnout and just how important turnout is going to be for Democrats to win battleground states just by a couple of thousand. I mean, remember, Hillary won the popular vote, but in these battleground states, it was razor, razor thin. And so that's the strategy, right, to really push turnout in the cities in order to flip just some of these battleground states. Increase the turnout in Philly. Increase the the, the turnout in uh, in the in the in, in Madison and whatnot. Is that is that is that the strategy, Brian? 
It is. And, 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 you know, I am not one of these people who believes that this race is over by a long shot. I think it's it's going to be close right up to the very end. And, of course, it comes down to turnout, which is the biggest cliche in politics. But in this case, it's very true. But the, the, you know, the bad news for Donald Trump is that with early voting taking place all over the country and him behind in the polls consistently in battleground states, those votes are coming in are reflective of where he is in the poll today. And yeah. last night at his debate, you know, anything, uh, you know, short of a self-immolation was going to be a, an improvement on his prior debate <laughs> performance. So, um, you know, by that standard, I guess he did better than previously, but he didn't do anything to change the dynamic of the race. All right. And Joe Biden and Joe Biden had a good debate. I thought Trump was better than his first debate, but that's not going to shift things. So I think he is in a, in a world of hurt and it's going to be a hard. Uh, uh, it's going to be tough for him to turn things around over the next few days in a way that really makes a big difference for him. All right. Coming up, we go geopolitical. What happened in Sudan today? I'm Kevin Cirilli. Panel stays. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Fiscal stimulus talks driving investor, driving investor sentiment and movement up on the street. As they say, most U.S. stocks rose after the Trump administration resuscitated hopes for a spending package. Treasuries remained higher. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, the S&P 500 edged higher to pair a weekly decline and erase losses after White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said he expects a deal in a day or so. We actually have a soundbite from Mark Meadows. Let's take a listen to what Mark Meadows told reporters at the White House. Here's Mark Meadows. Oh, we don't we don't have that soundbite. We don't have that soundbite. But Mark Meadows uh, said that he expects a deal in a day or so. Tech shares underperformed after Intel plunged more than 10%, dragging chip makers lower. American Express also faltered following earnings. And Gilead rose after its antiviral therapy uh, became the first drug to formally clear to treat COVID-19. So all of that is what is on the minds of Wall Street. My colleague, Jonathan Farrow, spoke with the National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow, from the White House, that the ball is not moving much on stimulus talks at the moment, and that he doesn't know a bill can get done before the election. He added there was good faith on both sides in the negotiations. Here's the interview. The ball's not moving much right now. I mean, 
the two sides are still talking, and the committee chairs in the Senate and House, the relevant committees, they're talking uh, on, on a lot of these issues, appropriations, small business, banking, and so forth and so on. So uh, there's that. That's a good thing. On the other hand, there's still policy issues that uh, divide the two, uh, the two teams. Um, President mentioned some of them last night. Uh, he doesn't want to bail out poorly run states and local governments and their pension funds and so forth. So that's an issue. There are other policy issues that remain unresolved. So it's very difficult. The clock is ticking, as you know. Uh, be very difficult. Um, even if you had a deal in the next few days, you got to go through the committee print, and then you got to have votes in the House and the Senate. So it's not going to be easy. I don't want to predict anything. I'm just saying uh, there's more agreement than there was a while back. There are still policy disagreements, um, some numerical disagreements. So we'll see. It's still up for grabs. Well, let's start with numerical, then we'll get to substance. Larry, what numerical disagreement is there right now? Well, I think that in specific areas, I mean, I, I'm not going to get involved in the negotiating, uh, Jonathan, this morning, but in specific areas, there are numerical issues. Now, President Trump, for example, has said for, let's say, the checks, the mailed out checks for economic assistance, uh, he's willing to bid higher on that. He has no problem. Uh, he's willing to go with PPP for the small businesses. Uh, no problem. Uh, he's willing to help the airlines. Uh, no problem uh, on that score. Uh, he's always been willing to do these things. He's willing to help the um, uh, schools as they, of course, transition and renovate uh, to make school openings uh, safe and, uh, you know, cover the health guidelines. He's willing to do that. He's not willing, though, to pour lots of money uh, into various health care schemes that um, might benefit folks who are not U.S. citizens. He has a big problem with that. I just mentioned some of the state and local issues uh, and the pension issues, and there are other issues at stake. Um, one thing that's interesting that's come up, um, in the, uh, in the uh, Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin proposal, I'll call it the Republican proposal, we are very much, uh, we're keen on onshoring uh, for all kinds of supply chains, including pharmaceuticals yeah. uh, and related equipment. That's very darn important. And we would like to reward companies that either come to the U.S. for the first time or move back from China or wherever. So we propose investment tax credits. Apparently, the other side uh, doesn't like that. We've also proposed deductions uh, for restaurant meals uh, and other uh, forms of hospitality and entertainment. Apparently, the numbers there are sticking points. So I can't go through the entire list. I'm just going to say I there are that. still issues. I think many people feel like we're just going around in circles at the moment, Larry, as we drift towards the election. One question that's been asked by, by many, in fact, is whether both sides are negotiating in good faith. Now, of course, you're not going to say that about yourself, but I do wonder, do you think the other side is negotiating in good faith? Do you think Spe Speaker Pelosi is negotiating in good faith, or is this just political posturing with 11 days to go? Well, look, I I'm not a political analyst. Uh, I, I don't do personal stuff. I can't get into everybody's head. I'm just going to assume that we've been at this since July or mid-July, that there is good faith. At this point, I'm not even sure what that means. Look, there's very hard-headed, experienced, professional people engaged in these yeah. discussions. There are veterans, all right? Speaker Pelosi is a veteran. Uh, Mr. Mnuchin is a terrific money man. He knows the budget story up and down, including taxes. 
uh, uh, Senator McConnell is a very crafty, wily uh, veteran in these games. So they are engaged. They are talking, Jonathan. And I will ascribe, how about this? I will ascribe good faith to all sides. I'm not going to peck away on that. That was Larry Kudlow speaking to my colleague Jonathan Farrell earlier today on Bloomberg Television's The Open, uh, which you can catch every day at 9 a.m. Eastern New York time uh, ahead of the opening bell. And, of course, you can catch Jonathan Farrow, Tom Keen, Lisa Bramowitz on Bloomberg Surveillance, simulcast on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio every morning right here, wherever you get your Bloomberg. Switching gears now to geopolitics, because that's really all I ever want to talk about is geopolitics. Agar Shabali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, and the host of the great new informative YouTube program, Oh My World, on YouTube. Hagar, big developments, Israel, Sudan. What happened? This is a big deal. Kevin, all I like to talk about is geopolitics, too. I'm so glad you asked me about this. So um, this is a big deal. Listen, this is probably. Looks like we dropped Tagar on a Friday. It's OK, though, because what happened today, uh, I will tell us about uh, while we try to work to get Hagar back on the line. And if we get her back on the line, great. They might, are our indefatigable crew uh will will let me know if we have hagar and then in the next block we'll be rejoined by the panel uh so we'll we'll go there just allow me to catch my breath and yes so earlier today uh there was some massive new developments as it relates to israel and sudan and the president announcing that he is intending to remove sudan off of the terrorism list uh he alerted congress of such. And, and uh, reading from the Bloomberg Terminal now, President Trump uh, says that Sudan and Israel have agreed to make peace. The president spoke to reporters uh, in the Oval Office earlier. The president went on to say, reading from the AP, uh, that Sudan will start to normalize ties with Israel, making it the third Arab state, the third Arab state uh, to do so as part of U.S. broker deals in the run-up to Election Day. The announcement came after the North, Ameri the North African nation agreed to put $335 million into an escrow account to be used to compensate American victims for terror attacks. So we don't have that much time, Hagar, but are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. Okay, so that's what happened in, on the, uh, the Sudan-Israel front. But very quickly, why is that so important? It's a big deal because now you have a non-Gulf country that is signing a peace deal and a normalization agreement with Israel. And so you're spanning the geography of the Middle Eastern and Arab countries that are in favor of pursuing peace with Israel, which could shift the dynamic in favor of other countries pursuing peace with Israel. It's also going to mean a lot for Sudan's future because Sudan's trying to get bank loans right now. They're trying to push their democracy forward. This is going to put them on the right footing and the right path to do that. All right, coming up, stick around. Hagar, you're going to stay with me uh, because we're going to talk about another geopolitical issue that's on your radar. And the panel will also tell me what is on their radar as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Really interesting to see what happened with Gilead Sciences, Inc. rising after its antiviral therapy became the first drug formally cleared to treat COVID-19. Now, let's pivot back to what is on my all-star panel's radar. Hagar Shamali, Maddie Dupler, Brian Brokaw. Brian, what's on your radar? So in California, we also have an election here, and ballot measures are always a crazy, crazy, uh, there's always a huge amount of money spent. There's been something like $600 million that has already been spent on the campaigns. 200 million of which on a campaign for uh, Proposition 22, which would uh, consider app-based drivers like your Uber, Lyft, DoorDash driver to be independent contractors and not employees. And Uber and the other companies have spent already $200 million um, because their whole business model is at stake here. And right now, uh, the campaign is really close, neck and neck. It's possible that if it loses, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, others might shut down operations in the state. And this is something that no matter what will have repercussions, I think, across the country. Fascinating. That's a fascinating one. Yeah, it's really interesting. And here where I am in Nashville, Tennessee, is where Lyft is headquartered. I didn't know that till I was in downtown uh, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Brian, that's a great one. Maddie Dupler, what's on your radar? Well, Kev, thanks to Brian's. I'm going to do a twofer, but I'm going to keep it quick. One is that the National Taxpayers Union actually is releasing its ballot guide on Monday that will cover ballot measures just like the one that Brian just outlined. California is not the only place where there's interesting things on the ballots that affect taxpayers, workers, and businesses. So I encourage everyone to go check that out when that's released on Monday. Um, but secondly, stimulus negotiations. The one thing, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the stimulus negotiations that's super important. The one thing that I have thought is a very interesting question, because I'm a tax nerd, as you know at my heart um, that might make it into a stimulus deal is a remote work uh, compromise, which would allow people like me who spent uh, several months working in different tax jurisdictions than where I live to not be caught up in a maze of different uh, tax returns and um, income tax rules uh, and just qualify all that work as work done in the office, which I think would be hugely important for the economy. Otherwise, it's going to create a lot of really, really uh, troublesome barriers come time to file your tax next year what about all the people who fled down to the islands you know that were i forget which island it was but they like waived the you know the visa or something and a lot of americans well dang whatever that is i wish i'd gotten that deal i just went to wisconsin are you a country music fan me no i i'm okay with country music i saw keith urban before i got big at the brown county fair so i'm a little i'm okay with country music i'm not a big fan of you are it's friday it's friday keith urban is the legend he's the goat he's he's yeah he's great he's the alan iverson of country music i mean from australia (laughs) i don't even know he's like the oj wait i love he's the first country music cd i ever bought ninth grade be here by by keith urban wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you saw him at a country fair I saw him at like in 2000. Ooh, I'm gonna date myself. 2002, maybe at a country fair, at a, a county fair in Wisconsin, Brown County, where Green Bay is. I saw Keith Urban perform free. Oh, what I would give! What I would give! I've never seen Keith play live. He lives out here in Nashville. Uh, anyway, that's fascinating. Okay, Hagar Shamali, what's on your radar? The conflict. Now I'm gonna get really nerdy on geopolitics. The conflict in 
between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Okay, you it's had time. On my mind a lot you lately. had time. So, so explain this to us because this is also on my mind, and you and I have talked about this before. But you have time, so take a breath and explain this to us. Great. Oh, I'm so glad. So, well, first, thanks because it's such an important issue. So, this is a, a, a very old conflict, and in you know, to sum it up, the situation that you have now is really, at the end of the day, all Joseph Stalin's fault. For making, and really, I mean, this dates that far back and even further, um, where this is an area that was promised independence, and then Joseph Stalin promised the Turks that it could remain within Azerbaijan. This is about an area called Nagorno Karabakh. It is within internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan, but it is majority um, ethnic Armenians who have been there thousands of years. They control the area, it is autonomous. Um, and they fought for many years over this, over independence. And the problem that you have now, this fighting that's broken out, is that it is being actively fueled by Turkey. And Turkey has sent foreign fighters from Syria to the area. They have heavily armed Azerbaijan, and it looks like it could get very ugly very quickly. And that is why I am so concerned about it. Fascinating. Fascinating. Are you a, uh, are you a country music fan? Me? Myself? No, I'm kind of a nerd. You know, my favorite is actually opera and Frank Sinatra's style music. Really? I like Sinatra, I know. too. You know what's really crazy is that I was just – I do this thing every day where I say, like, today in history. And Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner got married in 1951 today, and then she filed for divorce in 1954. But remember that? Sinatra's a legend. He's like the OG Italian. Him and Ava Gardner. Oh. I'm an old soul. Hagar, you know this. <laughs> I know. I agree. If only we could hang out in person and listen to this kind of music. <laughs> you know, you know, when all this is over, we're gonna come down to Nashville. We're gonna we're gonna invite Keith and Nicole. We're gonna go get some uh, barbecue. <laughs> we're gonna give Christine Barada, our executive producer, a heart attack for continuing to go off on these bizarre tangents during Friday episodes. But you know, it is really remarkable. And these in in the sprint up to an election, I think everybody needs to take a chill pill. Am I wrong? Hagar, from your perspective, you've worked for Republicans and Democrats, you've worked at the United Nations. I mean, what do you make of this election? And I know you gotta stay neutral, but come on. Oh God, I don't even know where to begin. But it's, <laughs> you know, my 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 hope is that after this election that that things that there's and I'm not saying like I'm not trying to portend who's going to win here. I'm just trying to say that. Well, actually, no. I will. I mean, I'm going to be perfectly frank here. As long as President Trump remains in office, Washington and the election and all of this process is not going to be the 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 traditional way that we all know it. And I really do wish for the old ways, as as you know that when it when it was when I was living in Washington and working for both Bush and Obama, as you had said, um, I liked the the system the way it was before. You know, with yeah, kind of this mutual respect and and uh, and the kind of standard operating procedures, and that's what I kind of hope it goes back to. Um, I did think that the debate was more normal <laughs> last night than than the past one, so that's a, that's a good sign, I guess. <laughs> you know, it really is remarkable. It's remarkable because Hagar and all of our panelists really do have have a uh, a, a really strong understanding of just how policy gets done behind the scenes and how the dynamics and the contours and, and and Hagar you and I have talked about this a little bit but I actually think it's bigger than just one individual I think it, it has a, a yes obviously the occupant of the White House but also our fractured media systems the way that people consume media social media 
and, and the and and the influence of of uh, foreign governments impacting our information news flow on our social media platforms, Hagar. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and it's getting worse, right? So the fact that you have Russia actively hacking state and local governments and software companies that are used for elections and counting ballots is not only risky for the outcome of our actual election, but even if they don't succeed, it sows distrust among American citizens in our system. And the reason that the Russians do this is because the biggest threat to them is democracy. And what, if there's anything we've learned over the last two years, it's how fragile democracy can be. And I, you know, it's certainly concerning. And it's not just from Russia, as we know, it's obviously Iran and China as well. You know, and I'm going to end. I'm going to end on an optimistic note. And my thanks to Brian Brokaw, to Maddie Dupler, of course, Maddie, thank you, and Hagar Shamali for for spending so much time with me uh, as I'm in, make my way back from Nashville. I'm going to end on an optimistic note. Hagar, you said how fragile democracy can be. I hear you, but you know what? Let this election be a reminder of how strong democracy can be. My gratitude to you for listening. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thanks so much for listening. Have an incredible weekend. We're going to be back in full force on Monday as we sprint up and finish this thing, right? Run the race you're in. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it, Kevo. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.